Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily's going to start off with more facts about things we probably didn't know, like the myths and facts about the Northern Lights. I'm speaking with Ron Walsh from the AMI-TV show, Outdoor Adventures. Everything from hunting to ice fishing alone, spending days and nights on the ice alone. Ooh, find out how that goes. Our tips and text segment features Ron's workaround for mounting a sight on his muzzle loader that he can then use for target shooting or hunting with a sighted buddy. And my reflection this week covers campfires, smoke, and forest fires. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily. Hey, Lily, that was quite the massive outhouse we just installed at the Bluefish Exploration Center. It had to be accessible. It sure is nicely made. All those pine boards, it goes with the forest. Lily, I learned that in the Yukon, people that install outhouses always face them to the north. That way, when they're sitting in there during the winter, when there's no sun, they just leave the door open and look at the beautiful northern lights. And I understand you have some new myths and facts to share about northern lights with us. Science has revealed most of the secrets of the northern lights aurora borealis. So we know aurora forms when solar particles collide with Earth's upper atmosphere. Larger solar storms cause a greater influx of particles, which can cause auroras to reach lower latitudes and appear to a greater number of observers. The color of that aurora comes from specific gases that are excited by the solar plasma. Lily, why have so many myths about the aurora borealis developed over the years? When we look up at the trembling curtains of red and green and blue, right, a feeling of awe and, you know, mystery can pervade. So it's easy to see how many of these century-old myths referred to an otherwise unreachable world. So tying the mystical light to gods was an easy step for early cultures. Yeah, yeah. So the Algonquins on Manitoulin Island in Lake Huron thought an aurora was a sign of goodwill from their creator, Nanach Bozo, the Chuvas of Siberia, believed the Aurora Borealis was their heaven god helping women in childbirth. So one of the most common legends surrounding the Northern Lights concern those who have passed into the great beyond. So the people of the Six Nations Confederacy believe that Northern Lights showed an entry point to the land of the souls. The Vikings thought auroras were reflections from shields of the Valkyries, maidens who take dead warriors to Valhalla, heaven. So the Salteos of eastern Canada and the Kwakut and Tlingit of southeastern Alaska all saw dancing souls in the flickering sky, sometimes of humans and sometimes of animals such as whales or seals. East Greenland Inuits viewed the lights as children who died at birth. Oh, I'm just picturing the dancing animals in those lights. That must be beautiful. Are all these myths, though, uh, specific to death and birth? Linking animals to the lights was also common around the world. So some Scandinavian people from medieval times saw the flickering lights and believed them to be caused by gigantic schools of herring in the sea and light of the shimmering bodies reflected into the sky. One Finnish myth claims that foxes made of fire flung sparks into the air with their tails. Cool. Spotting the northern lights in China is less common, but a myth still evolved that these displays were the results of fire-breathing dragons. Wow. Do they have any linkage to the weather? Yeah, sometimes the northern lights figured into part of the weather forecast, as in the Penobscot of Maine, believing an aurora foretold windy weather. In Scotland, auroras are called merry dancers. Some believe that the quick motions of the dancers met unsettled weather, while slow and graceful movements foretold favorable weather. While we no longer blame auroras for 
the turn in the weather, they are a part of space weather. So the sun can unleash a geomagnetic storm at any time, triggering another round of magnificent auroral displays. Thanks for this, Lily. It really is a visual event in so many ways, right? There's no sound to it. No sound, no smell, no touch, no you know feeling. But I do recall uh, uh, legends from the Inuit who said that if they got touched by the northern lights, it could... Uh, bring bad luck or even bad health. Yeah, the aurora is emitted between 90 and 150 kilometers in altitude, so Ooh. mostly above the official boundary where space begins. Oh, well, yeah. So getting touched by the light itself would probably be a long shot, I guess. Thanks so much, Lily. Hello. Ron, how are you doing? Fantastic. Talk to me about how you got into all this outdoor stuff. When I was about five years old... I snuck to this bush on the edge of Saskatoon, and I seen all these kids climbing in trees and stuff, and I thought, this country, that's for me. One summer, I was a fishing guide up in Great Bear Lake. I've always been an outdoor person. I canoe, backpack, cross-country ski, fish, and when my eyesight went from something to nothing, Mm. I just continued. You got your hunting license when you could see. Has anyone ever challenged you about that uh, now that you're legally blind? Well, now I actually still hunt. Yeah. I have a rifle that's set up for, uh, uh, I call it tandem hunting. You, what do you hunt for? What do you get your licenses for every year? Uh, white-tailed deer. And when we go up north, uh, I might be, I'm trying to get, uh, light up a moose trip. I want to go moose hunting this fall. What about turkey? Uh, no, in Saskatchewan, there's nothing like that. But we have, there's spruce grouse, and there's a few grouse where we'll be up moose hunting. That uh, during the day, we can just drive around on side by side and then we see something we stop and get out and take everything out of the case and slowly walk up and but for the most part we just get in the tent and put the call out for moose and just sit there again we're going to do an area where it's no long-range shootings there's nothing like that everything is mm-hmm. super 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 safe except except their moose and it's fall and it's rut season <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah. There's a, we might put the call just a little ways from the tent. Uh, uh, we won't. We won't put the call in the tent. They are big. How do you like driving around with the side by side? That's a great well, invention, eh? The side by side. Oh, absolutely. For myself, um, I'm the passenger. I can hop in there. It's comfortable. It's uh, got a windshield for the most part. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, way more comfortable than, say, riding around on a quad. Some of them are noisier than others. Like, some of them are very noisy. And then you put the helmet on on top of that, and you're almost in a dome of silence, right? I mean, uh, with, right. with the noise and the helmet, you can't hear. Unless you really put your helmet right next to your friend's mouth, you won't really hear what they're saying. So, But others, I notice, are getting quieter and quieter. They're get, and now they have some electric side-by-sides. Well, it depends on where you go. I mean, the trees bouncing off your face kind of keeps you uh, wide awake, too. So. <laughs> the nice thing about a side-by-side is you're really beside the person driving instead of like an ATV or a motorcycle where you're behind them. Where there's really no communication. You know, we're not going fast. We're not, uh, you know, doing too much mud bogging and stuff like that. So, yeah, we're, you know, most of the time driving fairly slow. And I looked at the Argos, but they're expensive, you know. 
Well, in certain places, you need an Argo to get in. In certain bog and certain places to get in, there's just nothing but an Argo can get you in there. Yeah, and, and just for people who don't know what an Argo is, they're like, uh, they either have three wheels on each side or four wheels on each side. It's uh, a rectangular plastic kind of tub you're sitting in, and they go over the land, and then you can drive them right into the water, and they actually will float and, and propel across the surface of, uh, of water as well. And you can also uh, put tracks on them. You can put tracks in the wintertime for deep snow? For the mud. And, oh, yeah. You get an Argo going. They can, they can go a lot of places. So how was your canoe trip? Uh, when I talked to you last week, you were just about to head off into the wilderness with a, uh, with a canoe trip. And you were going to go see Grey Owl's uh, cabin. Yes, we uh, made it up to Waskasu and we canoed across Kingsmere. The uh, lake got kind of rough and one boat kind of got full of water and had to pull over for a bit. So we had a little bit of adventure there. Made it in, made it in the Grey Owls cabin and uh, the weather was actually really nice after that. We had a little bit of wind for a couple of afternoons and other than that, it was great. And Grey Owl, for people who don't know who Grey Owl is, you got you to gotta read some books about Grey Owl. He was a famous Englishman that came to Canada and then... Uh, was adopted by an indigenous uh, community and then eventually passed himself off as an indigenous person, married an indigenous woman and lived a very nomadic life and uh, became sort of a, a park interpreter for Parks Canada for a number of years. And I think that's the cabin you visited, right? He was he a was quirky kind of guy. He had some uh, odd habits yeah. and liked the beverage now and then. And uh, But for the most part, his heart was there. He was there to help the park and help them, you know, the animals in the park. So, I mean, he was very much a good ambassador in that way, mm-hmm. but he was a character. So the cabin uh, is out over the, over Ajuan Lake. Yeah. So when he was there, he had two beavers that he lived with. So he, the beavers had a hole in the floor of the cabin to actually get out in the lake and live in the water. And then they would spend, then they would come out of the water back into the lodge that he built in the corner of his cabin. And the beavers would sleep and during the day and wanted to, you know, chew stuff at night. So he'd have to stay up at night. So therefore, his wife and daughter, they built another cabin about 30 feet away so they could sleep at night and uh, not be bothered by the beavers. Ron, have you ever had some close calls yourself with uh, wild animals or just getting lost in the outdoors? Uh, Do you have a story you want to relate to us? Well, I did. Um, Animals-wise, I've you know run into kind of stuff all over all over the place, but I've yeah. never really you know been charged by a bear. I've uh, nothing like that. But uh, oh, a few years ago, uh, many years ago, I was at Grails, and I my sight wasn't that good at the time, and I was there with uh, another person, and we just couldn't see where the trail went. It wasn't supermarked at a certain spot, so we ended up at a campsite for about. Uh, two and a half days without food. And there was rose hips, dried rose hips. There was dried blueberries and stuff like that. We And there was lots of water and there was no, you know, at that point we weren't walking any farther. So we weren't exerting a lot of energy. So it wasn't as big a deal as I thought. Did someone come and rescue you? Yes. Finally, the uh, gal uh, was with her car was in the parking lot and resources said, hey, that's been there too long. So they came uh, through a boat in the, in the lake and came looking, and there we were. We were at a campsite. Adventures with Ron Walsh, outdoor adventures, it, that's, that's going well, eh? Absolutely. They come and ask me, um, what kind of adventures do you think we should do? And we talk it over, and yeah, it's been great that way. The, uh, anything I've done in the shows is something that I've wanted to do mm-hmm. or I've done before, and they don't ask me to do anything that uh, I wouldn't want to do. 
So all these shows are 100%, uh, you know, definitely I've had a lot of influence on where we're going and what we're doing, and I very much appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So no cliff jumping, no uh, kayaking down uh, waterfalls? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> a little more training, maybe. In 2017, I climbed the Chilkoot Pass. I was the third person to do that. Wow. That's... Uh, a 53-kilometer uh, trail from Alaska into British Columbia, right. third person to do that. And then a year after that, I did a canoe trip on the Churchill River. I did a 180-kilometer canoe trip, 140 on the Churchill River. Incredibly nasty chunk of river that has, there's no cabins around there, nobody boats around there, 25 sets of waterfalls and rapids, and yeah. it was pretty extreme. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the very few blind people have ever done that trip. I find, as a blind canoeer myself, I find deeper, faster water to be more my style than sort of the late summer shallow water where it's just a rock garden. You're always, you know, because I'm in the front of the boat, you know, as a blind paddler and the blind bowsman or the bow, any bowsman in the, in the canoe is supposed to sort of, you know, be stroking to get you uh, moving around the rocks, right? So if there's a lot of rocks, it's a lot of potential issues with holes in your canoe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Super, super, super technical stuff. Yeah, I don't do. I, you know, maybe class two rapids, something like that, but nothing too, too, too crazy. Places that we're on the Churchill River where uh, there's, they call them boils, mm-hmm. where the water goes down and then it comes up like the water's boiling. And all of a sudden you're canoeing along and that boat will go like, oh, two meters sideways. First few of those kind of get your attention. <laughs> Ron, do you fish yourself? I do. Summer fish, ice fish. I have a shack that's insulated that I can pull the snowmobile. And I'll get pulled out on a lake by myself and just get left there for four or five days or a week, something like that. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, a little wood stove in it made out of a propane tank that I cook on. I've got uh, plenty of wood. And then when I go to sleep, I just zip the sleeping bag up and I leave the window open. Wood stove goes out in about 20 minutes and I just zip the sleeping bag up and just stay out there. Two questions on ice fishing. and People never talk about this, but what do you use for a bathroom? A pail. It's rude, but I mean, don't want to be making a mess. I go to Whitewater, this Whitewater Festival, Barker Lake Whitewater Festival. Uh, it's on, on the Churchill River. And yeah, you get a lot of people out there and there's no bathrooms. The Where there's dirt, there's microbes that can kind of eat up whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you get up, to the, up where there's rock and a little bit of moss, it doesn't. No. So in the past, we've done that as well, where you've got a you know, whole group of people with pails of, mm-hmm. and it's disgusting, but it's less disgusting than leaving it there and finding it there next year. Hey, my other question uh, for you when you're ice fishing, and this is my challenge, is if you wander away from your hut a little bit, you know it can be awful quiet out there, right? What I do is I have a radio going all the time. I know where it is. Um, when I open the door, on my left-hand side is my cooler, and straight out in front of me is my pile of wood. So when I go out of the shack, I have to be touching the shack all the time or within reach of the shack. And I kind of design everything so as I open the door, it's all organized and right there. Brilliant. Like if I walked, you know, so many meters from the shack and turned around and tried to find it, I wouldn't. 
and I'm for the most part there by myself in the middle of nowhere. If I headed off in the wrong direction, and and if I go just grab some firewood, I'm also not taking my jack and all dressed up, just kind of running out and grabbing it. So safety-wise, if I ever walked the wrong direction and just had to walk for help, I wouldn't make it because we're out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There's no farms. There's no nothing. There's no, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's so if I walk and also the where I'm fishing, it's uh, about three kilometers from shore. So, yeah. Like I fish a lot on frozen rivers and, and you know, you're fishing on shore ice, but the, there's often open current in the middle of the river, open water. So, yeah, yeah, you don't want to be wandering off in the wrong direction. That's for sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. And a lot of stuff might seem kind of crazy. This blind guy goes off and does these things. But I've been doing it for a long time. Um, when I go out... I've got my cell phone there. I've got, you know, um, I'm in communication with other people. Mm. This is not jackass. <laughs> I'm out there, you know, to do all these things and function properly without, you know, and if I couldn't do some of these things, well, I couldn't go because it just has to be safe or I, or I don't make it. And you can't depend on technology. Like you say, you got a radio and, uh, but you know, the radio batteries die at some point. You don't want to be 30 feet from your ice fishing shack checking a, a tip up or something. And all of a sudden the radio goes off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And at times I'll even turn, uh, to, um, I have a little Victor Trekker also that I'll turn something on as well. And so I'll have two audio sources, but you're right. I definitely, um, within arm reach of that shack all the time and it's arranged. So I don't have to run around to the front. I don't have to do a lot of that stuff. You're not setting tip ups up all over the place. You're no, um, for the most part, I'll have just, uh, two lines in the shack and I'll just run them there. Another problem with being out there that long by yourself is the holes freeze. Even if you pour warm water down there, the top won't freeze, but eventually the bottom will. So you got to wait a few days, and then the, the shack I have has four holes, so I'll have to, this year I'm going to try waiting a few days and then fishing these for so many days and then flip to those holes and then drill them later. They'll last uh, a little longer. And now they have uh, electric ice augers, my friend. I got one. I'm going to get one. And you can use those inside your shack without making a big smoky mess. They don't need tune-ups, and yeah, absolutely. I don't have one, and I'm going to get one this, this fall, for yeah. sure. Yeah, they're a little pricey, but you won't regret it. Ron, we could go on forever, but I uh, already got a lot of material here for my podcast. Thank you so much for being on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, and uh, man, uh, hopefully we get to do an adventure together someday. Well, that sounds fantastic. Hey, um, and one of the things I'm possibly working for for Season 3 is Blue Origin. Oh, well, you want to go into space? <laughs> yes. I always thought, you know, blind people should make great astronauts. Don't need windows. Don't need lights. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> as, long, hey, as long as I get to hit the button, I want to drive. Yeah, yeah. Well, you used to go to Epcot and uh, Disney World and go on that uh, that ride where you get to be uh, in a simulator. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, that does sound cool. <laughs> Good luck, Rod. Keep me posted okay, on that one. All right, cheers, man. Here's a tip from Ron Walsh on how to create a sighting technique for your muzzleloader for target shooting and hunting with a sighted friend. I have a rifle that's set up for, uh, uh, I call it tandem hunting. Mm -hmm. The scope is about two inches in the back of the gun, so I can aim. Uh, I was out uh, practicing the other day with a friend, and at 50 yards, it was like right into the two-inch group, so it's... Like, that's really good shooting for anybody. That was with a muzzleloader. Uh, where the normal scope goes, you put a bar there, 
and then you tap another set of rings on top of that. So now the scope's a little higher and further back. So you can bring the scope back to about two inches in the back of the gun. So the person standing behind me uh, can help me aim. That's a nice low tech because, you know, I, I haven't heard of that approach. Uh, I've heard of people mounting, you know, like GoPro cameras on their scope so that people can look at what they're sighting at with a yeah. wireless uh, display kind of thing. Well, there was an outfitter in Saskatchewan that uh, forever specialized in helping people who were blind in wheelchairs uh, go hunting. A friend worked with a guy that was involved with that, and he helped me out with the gun. And, yeah, it works actually really good. And when I'm shooting, I'm doing it out of a ground blind where I'm not walking around with a gun. I'm probably safer than the average person. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm shooting, it's, you know, it's all usually over bait and so it's all super controlled and it's there's no like safety wise like i say i'm probably safer than the average person your sighter sits behind you to use the scope yeah they just sort of sit you know sit beside me in the in a tent and watch and then when it's ready to take a shot they just get behind me and uh, they can help me move my shoulder or whatever and i kind of fold my head out of the way a little bit and we shoot. So I use a little tripod, a little V on the top. Yeah. Like I say, when I set the gun in there, it's kind of helping you already start. And also, we practice a bit before, so I got some idea where exactly where, what we're doing. Have you looked into some of the other uh, sighting aids, like the cameras or the uh, uh, laser spots? Yeah, all that stuff kind of, you need batteries and it's, you know, we're out in the cold at times and where this is just so low tech and the accuracy just works great. Um, yeah, I like the low-tech approach, and, and then I say I, I really have no reason to change it. If the accuracy is really good, and it's uh, no batteries. And this is a muzzle loader you're using? I have a muzzle loader, and I also have a rifle. And I also have a shotgun that I have a holographic sight on it. And uh, friends in the past, we've driven around and you know run up on spruce grouse, and uh, I get out with that, and he stands behind me and helps me aim again. And, yeah, I mean, I've been very successful with that. Again, it's so safe when I do it. I'm not running through the bush. I'm not slipping and sliding. I'm getting out when it's a super easy shot. Well, I know the biggest uh, issue for hunting and, and uh, danger to other hunters and pedestrians is hunters that shoot at sound, right? They hear sound in the bush, something rustling around, and they shoot first and then go investigate later. And, you know, that's the number one cardinal rule as a hunter is you must identify your game before you shoot. Well, absolutely. And for me, I'm not just, you know, walking through the bush in unfamiliar territory. Uh, for me, it's I'm sitting in front of bait, um, you know, or, or on the side by side. It's, you know, the easiest shot in the world is my shot. There's no, you know, long range shots. There's no, yeah, like for me to be able to do this, I'm not there to take chances. I want to do this properly and safely. If I don't feel it's safe, I'm not doing it. What's a holographic yeah. sight? It's a little pl- flat plate that goes on the top of a shotgun, mm-hmm. and you can adjust it. Has it that has a battery, and it throws a little holographic sight on this little uh, plate, and with that you can aim. Somebody stands behind me and and helps me that way as well. Ah, the warmth and heat of a campfire are often the things we look forward to most at the end of a busy day in the outdoors. A chance to warm up, relax, have a good chat with a friend, maybe even cook a little food, or even just a marshmallow. The only thing annoying about a campfire, other than, you know, having to collect the wood, is the smoke that comes from them when you're sitting downwind or it's swirling about. And now we find out that breathing in smoke can be a high-risk activity. We learn this 
as a result of all the forest fires and smoke that swept across Canada for the last six months. My concern is, will we ever be able to sit around a campfire again and truly relax without feeling anxiety from the smoke? Has the campfire taken on a whole new persona? The whole idea of microparticles entering our lungs. And what about the CO2 that campfires emit when we burn wood? You don't have to go back far in time to when people heated their homes with wood. It got so bad that small communities were often blanketed in a cloud of smoke. People didn't mind so much then. They didn't worry about lung cancer. They didn't live that long. That was something they weren't going to die from. Maybe they'd die with it, but not from it. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with respect to campfires. They can still be beautiful things. Just burn the right wood. Don't burn wet wood or green wood. And don't burn your garbage. It's that simple. One other thing. Don't sit downwind. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandy Frank. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.